0: Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1946 Frank Capra classic, "It's a Wonderful Life." So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing?
1: I have to say, I'm wonderful, Sam. <laughs> um, I'm going to
0: start with my with my uh, usual question, although I think it might be impossible to answer because this is such a ubiquitous movie, um, especially starting in kind of the mid 70s. What is your history with this film?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. It's it's probably an impossible uh, question to answer because, in fact, in fact, the answer to the question, the fact that the film began to be shown regularly in the mid '70s, is is really how, where its reputation rests. Uh, as we will talk about, it was not a big hit in 1946. So who knows? Sometime in that 1970s period when NBC was running this film, I must have seen it, and I don't know how many times. You know, uh, it's hard to say how many times I've seen it.
0: Yeah, and in my sense from it being on television a lot is it's the kind of thing that I would see pieces of growing up. I mean, this is one of the two central, like kind I mean, it kind of secular Christmas stories, right? Mm-hmm. Uh a, a Christmas carol and this can be remade and has been remade by every 1980s 1990s sitcom has done a christmas episode where it was either a retelling of this or a christmas carol and this and a christmas carol are related in certain ways too they're almost mirror images of each other so you know in some ways i was familiar with this story maybe well before i actually saw it's a wonderful life um and i will say though that for some reason the swimming pool scene I must have seen early on and that really stuck with me, in part, maybe just the idea of this gym opening up and there being a swimming pool. That feels like a very early memory of having seen that. And I don't even know that I associated it with It's a Wonderful Life for a long time, but just that there was a movie where this swimming pool opens up.
1: Yeah, and that was exactly my experience re-watching it this time. I, I, I remember the swimming pool scene, but I did not remember that it was in It's a Wonderful Life because it, it seems a scene not consistent with what you think of when you think of that movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And then I realized, all oh, right, this is where the swimming pool is going to open up. So a very Capra-esque move.
0: Yes. Well, it's interesting that you say the word Capra-esque, uh, cause to my mind, I mean, Frank Capra is a highly decorated film, uh, filmmaker. He won three best director awards, uh, you know, before world war two. Um, And I think of this movie and uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or in my mind, when I think of Frank Capra, a Capra esque story, I think about those, even though, you know, he won his, his, uh, his best, best director, best pictures for films other than those. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we, we talked about uh, it happened one night, which I think is an utter masterpiece. I think that is an amazing film, but I don't think of that as a Frank Capra movie. I think of, Mr. Smith and It's a Wonderful Life is that's a Frank Capra movie to me. Why do I feel that way?
1: Because those are movies that have a message. Uh, I, I think that I think that you know, and that's of course one of the things we can talk about with It's a Wonderful Life that it gets a little Ill- critiqued for that reason. But I think Capra is, Capra has a very um, strong view of uh, the goodness of human nature, the importance of the individual, the power of the individual, uh, a kind of idealist idealistic view of democracy if you will and i think that comes that comes through more strongly in movies like like this and mr smith than it does in farces or or, are like uh happened one night or a philadelphia story
0: well i have to credit you because one other piece that i want to add into our discussion of this as we get into this film um you sent me down a wonderful rabbit hole this week of um a rabbit hole called five came back so last friday i read the book which is phenomenal the Mark Harris book. If you're interested at all in filmmakers and the Second World War filmmakers around that time, it is it is a phenomenal book and it's a really rich text with lots of good stuff. And then yesterday I watched the Netflix documentary. There's a three part uh, kind of three hour documentary, which is great, especially after having read the book because then you get to see footage of the films that these people were were making uh, during World War II. Um, but this also shed so much light onto this movie because this is the first thing that Capra makes coming back from the war. It's the first thing Jimmy Stewart makes coming back from the war. Um, and it pairs with our film last week um, best Years of Our Lives, which is Billy Wilder, who's also uh, a major figure in in uh, in five came back. So um what's interesting about Wilder's ex- or, uh, about Capra's experience um, is that, most i mean he was he was part of the war effort from from early 1942 through 1945 um and while while the other directors uh john ford john houston billy uh william wyler and um george stevens all are really in action filming things capper's experience is far more um Heading up things in Washington, footage being sent to him. He goes to England for a while to negotiate um, to negotiate a production, a co-production with the British government. Uh, but my impression from from reading that book is that uh, Capra sees a lot less. Um, of the actual war, which is interesting to think about George Bailey in this, because this, the war also features in here. um, And, you know, we see all these other people going off to war, having adventures in the war. uh, And George, George stays home, but George also makes great sacrifices by staying home. So it's interesting to think about, you know, how much of... Capra's experience of the war is in George Bailey's experience of the war.
1: Yeah, you're you're exactly right, Sam. I I wanted to pair this with the best years of our our lives for a number of reasons. Um, You've already talked about the five who came back. And of those five, it was three, William Wyler, uh, Capra, and George Stevens, who formed Liberty Films. So you'll notice at the beginning of its wonderful life, you have this ringing Liberty Bell, which was in Capra's war films, the series Why We Fight. Uh, and it's, it's a really interesting concept because we've talked in the past about auteurism. And, and really the idea behind Liberty Films is that each of these filmmakers would be able to make three, they, they, they were committed to nine films, each would make three of their own without having the kind of studio control that they all were, were used to. Unfortunately, Capra bankrupted the project before it even got off the ground. He made This Wonderful Life for about $2 million, which is way over budget. It would have had to make $6 million to recoup. Uh, it didn't, and they had to sell out uh, uh, to Paramount. So uh, they never made another Liberty film. But it was interesting that those three came together to form that that company. And of those three, each of them was affected by the war in a different way. So, you know, we talked last week about Weiler making the best years of our lives, an element of Weiler's autobiography there and there. George Stevens, before the war, was a very highly regarded maker of com- uh, productive comedies. He was. He was really essentially shell-shocked by the war. Uh, He came back not certain he could ever make films again. He had filmed a lot of footage at Dachau, uh, and he was really literally haunted by the Holocaust the rest of his life. And when he finally did start making films again, he never made another comedy. Um, He made the really interesting Western, which I think we should watch in a few months, called Shane, which some people may be familiar with. So those were kind of two sort of extreme examples where I think Weiler kind of regained his filmmaking feet uh, and Stevens just found himself the old make films. And in the middle, as you suggested, you have Capra kind of making It's a Wonderful Life, which in a way, um, I like the identification of him with George Bailey. I think that, that's, that's true. But he also um, was fighting his own feelings of his own kind of inconsequential, in, being inconsequential. The idea that Hollywood had passed him by. And so he had a lot of fears. Uh, Mark Harris talks about how he has fears, desires, and wounds that he couldn't keep private, and these are the ones that he was kind of playing out uh, in the film. So you can kind of kind of see that, like in the confrontation towards the end, between Potter and George Bailey, where Potter says, "You once called me, you know, what what is it, a, uh, a frustrated, uh, bitter old man?" Well, you're a frustrated, bitter young man, and you can kind of see the two parts of Capra kind of fighting each other at that point.
0: Yeah, I have to say, uh, I've seen this movie countless times. This is the first time that I, you know, when I was writing down, talking about the opening of this movie, I had to go all the way back to the Liberty Films bell to be like, well, that's really meaningful. Like, if I was watching this, somebody, I would have, with somebody, I would have paused it and say, let me explain what this is, because that's really interesting, you know, that, um, uh, uh, that's, uh, that part of, uh, uh, of the opening. and we'll probably talk more about Capra's experience as we're going, and, and where Capra is in this film as we go through this. But I do want to talk about the the um, the fact that every time I see this, and I, again, I have seen this I don't know how many times. Uh, I watched it twice this week and was both times surprised by the structure of this movie. And the pieces that I forgot are part of it. Because I, this is this is a movie that has some... Um, ha- creates some very, like, cliche moments that that get replayed over and over to the point where you start to think, well, that's what the movie is. And then I realize, like, oh, actually, this movie is all these other things. And it has this, this very interesting structure. I mean, one of the things is that people think about this is, like, well, this is a Christmas movie. <clears throat> Christmas factors very little into this movie. <clears throat> I mean, it, it, some pivotal scenes at the end and some of the most iconic scenes surround Christmas but like it was so interesting watching this and realizing like oh there's all this stuff that that doesn't have to do with that part of the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I also think this is a deeply influential movie. I feel like as I was watching this I kept pointing to saying, "Oh, clearly this person was impacted by this and clearly this person was was impacted by this." So, uh so the movie opens with this sort of pan over Bedford Falls and these people praying for George Which is kind of interesting because he's, without knowing, without us knowing it, he's already introducing us to characters. Mm. Because once you know the movie, you start to pick out, oh, I know who that is. That's Martini. That's this person. That's this person. So it's really, it's really cool to rewatch and realize, oh, he's already doing this. And then we go to this bananas opening where we all of a sudden are in the (laughs) universe or the heavens. And this should be so silly. It, yeah. I mean, it, it 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 should look silly, but somehow he pulls this off. This sort of um, afterlife conversation where we just have this sort of picture of galaxies talking to each other, you know, and and we and 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 it frames why we're here and what we're going to be doing, and it makes sense out of those prayers. Um, so yeah, I, I just I always forget. I mean, I know I know the Clarence part of the story, but I always forget that we have this moment of the universe talking to itself, or God, <laughs> or 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 whatever you know, like it, like that is that is a crazy way to start this movie.
1: It is, and and, and oh, yeah. I, I'm glad you pointed that out, Sam, because I you know one of the ne- negative elements of the reviews was that unlike some other directors, uh, some review uh, Capper was criticized for not really making. Taking a step forward in his filmmaking technique. And, and, and I and I can't really understand that criticism watching this film because I feel like, well, I don't know. I mean, I've seen his pre-war films and I've seen this film, and I think he's doing lots of stuff in this film that is really inventive, as, as you already pointed out, from the structure to the um to the, the to the different settings, you know, given the technical limitations, you still get this really kind of interesting presentation of heaven. Um i uh, the the use of narrative, which he hasn't done much in the past i mean I just think there's a lot going on that is really pretty creative uh and it, and it help and i really kind of i think uh it's a really interesting uh, uh structure for, t- for telling the story it work, it works really well
0: well and, and one of the movies that we watched that it made me think of, and I don't know. I mean I'm cert- I'm certain Albert Brooks has seen it's a wonderful life but like it made me think of defending your life that there is this sense of like okay well let's go back and review let's review the tapes of life you know it's a little bit different setup but there is this depiction of the afterlife you know as this kind I and mean, even this idea that Clarence is in some administrative structure that he's hoping to advance in, like that is very Albert Brooksy and um, in, in defending your life, right? That there's just like, yes. well, if you do the right things here, you can move on. If you learn the right lessons, you do the right things, you can move on to the next, uh, the next <laughs> stage of those things. So, so it made me think of that. Um, but if we're thinking, okay, so we move from from that opening to, there's a series of, of time jumps in here. So, I mean, another thing that I realized is like, this is like a time travel movie in a kind of way too, um, which is going to come back to another reference in a little bit. So Mm -hmm. we have the 1919 stuff. I think this is one of the, the best, um, most economical ways to introduce almost everything that this film that we need to know Mm. we see in like the childhood version of this. So, so, we get to meet young George Bailey. For one thing, I think the casting across the board is great on this. I love the kid who plays young George Bailey. Oh, he's. Yeah, I think he's amazing. Um, and then, but you, we also meet all of these other characters who, at the time, you don't realize, like, oh, Sam Wainwright is going to be an important character. And you meet these girls and you're like, okay, well, these are going to be important. Like, and that we keep coming back to those. So it is that sort of small town part that we were introduced to, to those characters. We're introduced to the town. Mm-hmm. We're introduced to the building and loan. Um, we're inter- we're introduced to George's character, mm-hmm. right? Like 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 be, in his thing with Mr. Gower, right? That he has, you know, he realizes something, and it's like, I have to make this right, but he's not exactly always sure how to do that. Um, two other things that I think get introduced here, and then we can talk about this opening. We, we're introduced to George's view of his father. Mm-hmm. there's the great scene where he barges in to his father meeting with Potter. And for one thing, we realize how great his father is that he doesn't just dismiss his son entirely, but you know, but jo- George is there and George, you know, stands up for his father, you know, and he says, he's the biggest man in town. He's all of these things. Right. So, so we get this view of his father, which is important because all of that is going to echo in the final scene of when people are starting to tell George about who he is. The other thing that this 1919 sequence does is it introduces the tone of the film which this film is filled with really great comedy i forgot how funny parts of this movie Mm. are but then it's always punctuated with high drama Mm. so we have this moment of like like a lot of this is funny and interesting but then we have this thing with mr gower which is like this deeply 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 dramatic moment of his son dying from spanish influenza um and, and him almost killing this other child accidentally. And it's, so it's this like deeply dramatic scene, but it's, but it that punctuates this lighter childhood stuff at the same time.
1: I, I have to confess this is, this, may, this is a little bit of a side comment, but I also have to suspend a bit of disbelief because Lionel Barrymore and HB Warner uh, as, uh, as Potter and Gower respectively do not age in 25 years. Um, so that's, <laughs> but you have to leave that aside. Yeah, that, that scene with his father, I mean, I, I think that's, that's, that is one of, and um, his view of his father is one of Capra's, um, uh, that's his theme of what it means to be a hero. I mean, you know, the, 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 that, that's, that's where you get, get back to Capra's idea that it is the ordinary person, it is the ordinary life that has the potential for, for heroism in it. Uh, And that can either be seen as uh, sentimental for those who don't uh, share that sentiment or for Capra that can be seen as really what makes uh, life genuinely valuable is the way that you um, stand up for create solidarity with uh, the common, or the person next to you, and how you stick to it, even when it's hard and, and unrewarding, the way his his father does. So there's a there's an idealism at work uh, with his father that George a- a- admires, and he makes these commitments that, in a sense, what Clarence has to do is later to kind of bring him back to his own sense of value. It's not like it's not that he needs to learn a new lesson; it's that he needs to learn an old lesson over again, or realize that that lesson he's already um, inculcated as a kid that that still is valuable despite what's happened.
0: Yeah. There's a great essay, uh, on Vox from Emily Vanderwerf. I don't know if you read this, Mm -hmm. um, where she's talking about how this is, uh, one of the things she sh- one of the claims she makes and i think this is potentially true is that this is this is perhaps the best movie america has ever made about itself mm. in terms of like a particular set of views of like this is what america is especially coming out of the war because it has these th- these dark edges but it also has these pretty high ideals you know about um about this and she even talks about how if you pay attention to the framing of shots in this movie that up in, for the first three quarters of the film, Capra always fills the scene with faces. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even though you're highlighting, you know, Jimmy Stewart or Donna Reed, it's like in the background, there's always all of these people because it's always it's about all of these people. And then when you get to the last 30 minutes, when it's, you know, George never having been born, all of a sudden we see George isolated in shots or even when there mm. are people in the background, they get blurred out. Um, you know they they do some they do something different with the focus, so there is less of this sense of like him as part of something bigger so there is definitely like a a picture of america uh in this a uh, particular view of 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 american ideals and but also asking questions about those things so it's where i think it's i think this movie has these the, this these sentimental moments, but I think it also is asking questions about Kind of the value of some of these things and the value of the sacrifice of going to war and those types of things
1: well that that, that actually that, that i thought of another interesting connection to some of our recent viewings, sam in that respect uh and it may seem an odd connection to make but it, it made me think about the way that uh when we were talking about true grit and what john wayne meant the way that, that a john wayne character john wayne as an individual kind of represents a kind of, a, of americana um one of the French film historians uh, said, said about Capra's films that uh, the reason he thought they were popular in France was they provided, once they were discovered, kind of what he called an ideal conception of the American national character. Hmm. Um, a strong libertarian streak, distrust of power wherever it occurs, which is what you see in Potter, and uh, whoever is vested. Uh, he says in France, the young people are won over by the fact that his heroes are uninterested in wealth. Characterized by vigorous individualism, a zest for experience, keen sense of political and social justice, their ideal types, he says, created in the power in the image of a powerful national myth. So I, th- I think I think that's a, what you're saying exactly right. I think Capra is is a myth maker, and I think that people who who don't like that myth see it as kind of sentimental, unhistorical, kind of naive, and people who endorse that myth sort of are saying, well yeah but that's the american dream to which we aspire and it's helpful to have films like this remind us of that
0: right absolutely absolutely so then we go from 1919 to 1928 we finally get jimmy stewart in the movie um he's in in, and but there's this great moment in his introduction where he's talking about the suitcases and we get this freeze freeze frame which is also again this clever moment to remind you we're not just watching a movie we're sitting with clarence learning about this guy and it's the only time he pulls that trick but it is this great shot of like this enthusiastic jimmy stewart talking about the size of the suitcase and it's kind of great and it's and it's, it's basically like clarence is being told as we're being told this is the star of our movie <laughs> you know we're going to freeze on him we're going to look at his face for it for a second um yeah uh, and then in in 1928 there's uh, two, there's really two scenes here uh of big importance we have the dinner with the father um which is where we get to see george lay out his dream really lay out his dream he's finally going to get to go to college he's going to get to he talks about you know wanting to build things wanting to see the world wanting to explore i mean we saw this a little bit in the with the young george you know where he's uh, i love the line about i've been uh uh, recommended to be a member of the National Geographic Society or something like, like, but, but, but we see him really lay out his version of, of his dream, which is he wants to do great things, build great things, you know, um, and, and we see that kind of contrasted with his father. And there's even these great moments where he, without trying to basically insult his father about, you know, this shabby little office in the building and loan. And George repeatedly talks about, like, I don't know why he, Spent his whole life with this building and loan, like 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 he's he's constantly like questioning, not questioning what his father's choices too a little bit. There, it's like like why why have you why have you done this? At the same time, this is exactly what George does too, right? Is because of these ideals. And it ends with again him telling his. It's a, it's one of my favorite moments when he says, you know, you're you're really a great man. And then we see Annie from the, out- or from the kitchen say, I'm glad one of you lunkheads finally <laughs> said that. You know, because she knows he's a great man. And it's like you guys who are about to leave, because another theme that I love about this movie is this idea that um, Bedford Falls, no matter how idyllic we might look at it. For the people growing up in Bedford Falls, this is a town to get out of. <laughs> like right. this is a this is something like that hold that potentially can hold you back from seeing the 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 bigger world. Now, somebody who grew up in sort of a medium sized town, I get that feeling of like this is like like I the town I grew up in, perfectly lovely town. I couldn't wait to not be for, not be there anymore. So so we see that George has this uh, this dream as well. So we have that scene with the father. Anything you want to say about that before we get to one of my yeah. favorite scenes?
1: The movie? Yeah, Sam. What, what I want to say is that um, that that scene kind of foreshadows or sets up two additional scenes in which, um, to to to, in expressing an increasing amount of frustration and having an increasing amount of negative impact on the people around him, George expresses his dissatisfaction with with life. So it's it's gentle with his father because he hasn't yet suffered his big disappointment. But then it happens again with Mary. You know, he has this kind of romantic interlude with Mary and he's going to lasso the moon and all that. But ultimately what he tells Mary uh, is, you know, I, I want out of here. And then and then there's that very painful scene when he shows up at the house, right? And he doesn't really know. I mean, ultimately he ends up kissing her. But before he does that, he he does a lot of emotional venting and damage and then of course at the end of the film it's towards the end of the film it's with his kids uh he blows up at the teacher he blows up at mary he blows up at the kids and i have to say sam no matter how many times i see this film there are scenes like that that i i practically cringe when i know that scene is going to happen you know even even though it's just a movie it's just make believe these aren't real people i when he goes off on those rants i just I quiver, and 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 he does so much, he does so much damage, and 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 so or potential damage. So, and so I see that it's kind of like this expanding circles of of emotional explosions. Uh, and he has to realize that those negative effects are uh, balanced by, or can be balanced by, or are balanced by the the positive effects. But I really like Capra's realism in that sense, because even though ultimately that feeling of I need to get out of here is um, tamped down, and even though it's, in a sense, kind of compensated for, I like the fact that it's at least acknowledged. And I would also say, as as an aside, what I love about Stewart's performance is this is the Jimmy Stewart who becomes the tortured hero of the Anthony Mann Westerns and the star of Vertigo. I mean, I think this is a real turning point in Stewart's career in terms of the kind of characters that he portrays.
0: Yeah. And I will say, especially the scene, I know exactly what you're talking about with that feeling, especially the scene with the kids at the end or towards the end. Um, part of it is he got such great real performances out of those kids too. Like it's, it's almost as if he didn't tell them this guy's going to blow up at you. Cause like they're, they are, they look so um, frightened by what's happening. And and uh, I, I, sh- Uh, maybe I'm saying too much about myself. I think most people who are a parent have had that moment where you said something to your kids and you look at their response and you're like, Oh, I, I am not aware of myself right now. And like, Mm -hmm. this is not about you. And I need to make sure, you know, that this is not about you. And, you know, cause it's it's usually like in the case of George, he's bringing something home with him. It's not about her playing the piano. You know, that's, that's, that's not that, that's just what get, what gets unleashed on. And, And so like, I think that is, is such an unbelievably real scene and a very painful scene to watch Mm -hmm. but executed almost perfectly like like yeah which is hard to do with with child actors so before we get to that jimmy stewart though the jimmy stewart of the 1950s westerns we need to talk about the walking home from the dance because this is maybe the most charming thing i've ever seen and and like you've talked a lot about how people compare jimmy stewart and tom hanks and it's like this is where I see it the most. Cause it's like, this is the kind, there's very few actors who could pull off everything else in this movie and be that charming and funny. And like, I think like, this is where it's like, I think you could drop Hanks into that, but he's probably the only other person, like a young, young Tom Hanks, you could throw in there. But Stuart is, and, and, and Donna Reed, I need to say both of them are, it is one of the most charming scenes I've ever seen in a movie that the two of them both, playing with each other, you know, and 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 that. And I just think it's I just think it's kind of amazing. And we have that scene is also, like I said before, gets punctuated by tragedy, right? We like we get we we build up to this romantic moment. And then we have the moment and then she's hiding in the bushes and he's you know thinking about well what do I do with it. That's that's very Tom Hanksy moment. And then we don't get the we don't get the resolution of it because life gets in the way right they, they drive up and say his father's had a stroke and he just throws the robe and leaves and it's like that whole that that whole moment that relationship gets cut short at that and i think that is just a astoundingly good scene
1: yeah it is amazing you're right it's amazing how he pulls off that change of tone and i and i think he's able to do it because because the film does it pretty consistently i mean that's that's kind of George's character. George's character is about the change, changes of tone. I also think he pulls off that scene because there's just a little bit of screwball in there, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the, the kind of play between the two of them. And yes, his musing over what to do now that he's got the robe and she's in the bushes. It's 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 just it's classic. But the other great thing that it does is I think that what Capra is doing is um, he's he knows uh, it's very Shakespearean actually. He he knows how to how to build. Tension and then when to release it with a little bit of comedy. So rather than seeing it I mean we can see it as a shift from comedy to tragedy But I think the other way to think about it is often there's there's shifts from tragedy to comedy In other words, it's the reason you're able to bear some of the heavier moments of the film is because of the lighter moments But what he's done is he's actually reversed the order of things So he lightens things up and then you can kind of take the heavier moments when when they when they occur It also feels very very true to life um, you know, uh, tragedies don't arrive when it's convenient for them to arrive. And uh, that's, that seems to have an element of verisimilitude to it.
0: I need to point out one uh, uncredited actor sitting on the, the guy, the old man sitting on the porch. Um, My daughter was watching this with me and she said, Oh, that's the mayor from the Andy Griffith show. And in fact it is. So very good. I didn't recognize him, but she knew instantly. It's like, yes, that's who that is. So, um, so then we go to 1932. Uh, Harry is returning from college and this is George now going to finally get his chance to leave. Um, And Harry shows up with a wife and a job. And there is just this sense of, like, there is this world of opportunity out there. And everybody who, who leaves, leaves <laughs> seeks to be able to tap into that opportunity in a way that uh, George never gets the chance to, uh, to leave and do that. And that then eventually leads into the scene you were talking about where he sees Mary again. And it is so deeply awkward. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but we also get the phone call with Sam Wainwright, which is... Uh, an interesting scene because there's also this. I, I love stories about people who have like a particular dream that they want to achieve, and they and there is this sense that like the world keeps trying to draft them into other things, try to pull them into other things, even when those are big opportunities. So Sam is like, so he's like plastics. That's that's the future. Which makes you think of the graduate as well. Um, yeah, yeah. uh And and it also made me think about. Uh, uh, very different character, very different kind of story. But this is one of the big themes of, uh, Saul Bellows, the adventures of Augie March is Mm. this, like the world trying to like recruit me or draft me into these things. And I'm trying to find some other, some other way. So I, I, I'm a big, I really loved that book. And and, in that moment, made me think of like, yes, George has dreams, but the world is, is pulling on him. And there is this tension between his dreams and other people's dreams for him. And then just responsibility right mm-hmm. like like he and so so that because this then leads it's, it's kind of an amazing cut we go from the the phone call and they kiss and then we cut to the wedding yes. and the, one of the last things we heard george say is i don't want to get married right and then we and then it's almost like a smash cut to and they're married and they're married <laughs> um, which leads into one of the most uh, one of the really iconic scenes is the bank run scene um mm. Which I think, if you even if you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, you've probably seen that scene or at least seen that scene parodied or or replayed in other kinds of ways. So, is there anything about that moment or about about those moments? I mean, I think that I think the bank run scene is is one of the again the moments where we're talking about kind of the communal ideals of um, of this, which is always interesting because when you read about Capra's personal politics, he is not a leftist. He's not somebody who sort of flirted with communism in the 30s i mean he uh at least initially was not a was not a um fan of roosevelt but kind of gets won over by roosevelt so there's you know there there's some kind of uh another thing emily vanderwerth talks about is how this is uh, such a great movie to sort of express New deal values in terms of that particular view of america
1: yeah i mean i th- I think the bank run scene is also a reminder of the other the other side of america of small town American life you know i mean because the fact is that despite george 's appeals um, people still want their money mm hmm you know and, and so so there there is the there is the specter of, of almost a kind of a mob mentality um, but then of course, in terms of the theme of the film, one of the one of the the roles that that scene plays is uh, when Mary uh, voluntarily you know gives up the honeymoon money, then you know that she and George are kind of on the same page. and so I think this the scene serves several different functions, right It, it, it makes sure that, um george's desire uh is is yet again thwarted um and if 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 you've never seen the movie before i think you catch on pretty quickly that he's not going to get out of this town or we're not going to have much of a story so so he gets and i think it's also interesting that scene takes place in a driving rain Mm -hmm. uh we get snowstorms we get rains we get lots of weather we get darkness so 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 there's that there's that theme there's the theme of the the townspeople who yeah, they may be your friends and neighbors, and you're helping them out, but they might turn on you if they think they're going to lose a buck. Um, I mean, it's really a scene that's very much about the value people put on money. Like the one guy who says, "I have two hundred and forty-two dollars," and George is like, "Well, how much do you, do you need? I need. I want my two hundred and forty-two dollars." So you know, so Capra is not sentimental about that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you get Mary, you know, demonstrating her own her own generosity. As somebody says about Mary, she's oppressively perfect. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, she is Donna Reed and the camera absolutely loves her, uh, eats her up in this in this film. But that's really important obviously for the success of their, their marriage or their relationship that they're kind of on the same page. Although the film really doesn't do much to develop their relationship. As you know, there's a kiss, they're married, there's four kids. Uh, And then cue the crisis. That's really all you can see. Because the fact is, their domestic happiness is of no interest to us. What we want to know is how they navigate the domestic unhappiness.
0: I have to say that scene also... As a young child, taught me how banks work at least a little bit that like because I think I think that's the first time I realized that banks weren't just like big safes where they put all the money, but it was like, oh, they 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 invest that money back in giving loans to people. And I and like honestly, I learned about banking from that scene, which is probably not the worst way to learn about banking because it's also a pretty idealistic view of banking too, to be like, well, we just invest back in the community and the money's in your house and in your house. And it's like Oh, OK. You know, so, so that was actually a pretty formative moment for me to to think about. Uh, maybe the first thing I ever learned about economics was that scene. <laughs> so maybe that says something uh, something about me. So then we have the 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 pretty. we already talked about this, the pretty quick war montage where mm-hmm. we see different people, you know, going off to going off to sort of fight in different parts of the war. And we see George doing his uh, doing his job. Um, because of his, uh, because of his disability, because he, he has no hearing in his left ear, which also made me think about William Wilder. Uh, I wonder if, I wondered if that was like a tip mm-hmm. of the hat to fellow, uh, Liberty Films partner, William mm-hmm. Wilder to say. Because Weiler lost his hearing in the war yeah. as well. Um, the the other thing we get here before we get Harry's return and kind of the, the end, you know, moving towards the end of this movie is we get the introduction of Bailey Park, um, yes. which is something, which is something I forget about in this movie mm-hmm. because, you know, George's dream is right. I want to build something. I want to create something. And it's like, you have, <laughs> you might like think about all of these home And we get the thing with a scene with Potter and um, the guy that works for him. And we, and there we get the story of how this, this park is built out and we get a really important character, I think, is uh, Mr. Martini yes. uh, get, moving into his house because Capra is himself uh, an Italian immigrant and definitely before the war really struggled with being seen as a real American and not mm-hmm. seen as like a hyphenated American, seen as an immigrant. Um, there's this great moment in the documentary, Five Came Back, where. Uh, Guillermo del-, del Toro is talking about Capra as an immigrant um, and says that Cap- he, he describes Capra's story coming through the war as like a Pinocchio story where he finally gets his dream of being a real American when he comes out. It's like, there's no longer a question about that with, with <laughs> Capra, you know, at that point. Um, so we get, we get sort of that sort of picture of the immigrant version of the American dream. Um, there's also a really great... Uh, wordless moment in this uh this scene where as they walk away from the the um martini house and sam Wainwright is there now mm. ma- you know making it big in plastics and he invites them you know oh you should come down to Florida with us and you know and, and again the the workings of Bedford Falls is like no we can't go. But there's this great scene where they drive off in this large, beautiful car which makes me think of the car in Sunset Boulevard, right? Oh, uh-huh. And um but there's just this shot of of George and Mary with their arms around each other, watching them drive off into the distance. And it is, it's both, it it starts with this moment of like, they're kind of happy with their choices, you Mm -hmm. know, that they're together. But then when George walks back to his own beaten up car, he also kicks the door of it and is like, man, that could have been me. I could be out there, you know, like, like it's, Mm -hmm. no words are said at that point, but like that is, I love that moment to say, that tells me a lot about where George is at. There is sort of this, happiness and he is starting to, you know, build something, but there's also this sense of, I keep missing out. There's, there's stuff out there that I'm not experiencing.
1: And the car is a great American symbol of that, right? You know, the the car is a symbol of freedom and success and the size of the car you drive and the fact that he piles the car into the tree, that, that, that resonates.
0: So this then accelerates us into the the sort of ending of the movie. So we get Harry wins the Congressional Medal of Honor and the um uh his they're preparing for his big return home. We see uh Billy in the Uncle Billy in the um in the bank kind of bragging to Potter, and this this leads to him losing the eight thousand dollars. We get this, you know, George's kind of breakdown, this really too real scene with the kids that we talked about, and this leads us up to the bridge, and we finally get Clarence. Um, and now this is one of the things that that is, again, I think we forget about with this movie. So I was watching this last night and my wife came home just as George was at the bridge. And she said, Oh, you must have just started this. And I said, No, there's about 30 minutes left. Because this is what I think of as the movie is yeah. everything, everything in the last 30 minutes. And I said, Yeah, you forget how much of this movie isn't about this part. Because that that's the part that you think is expanded into the whole thing. So we see Clarence. Enters the movie about 90 minutes in. And I'm always, again, something else that always shocks me, I'm always shocked by how Clarence saves him. Yeah. It's by jumping in, yes. by putting himself in danger because he has just watched George's life to know, oh, George will save me. George will, <laughs> will, will 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 snap automatically into from, you know, I'm going to kill myself to I need to do everything I can to save this man.
1: Yeah, no, it's it, 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 yeah. It, it reminds us that, uh, as you said earlier, that we have been watching uh, the story along along with Clarence. So we're we're in kind of the same the same position that he is. Yeah, Clarence Clarence is wonderful. I think one of the things I like about uh, Capra's op- choice with Clarence is there, there's just enough Clarence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, and I think you know he could he could have he could have gone uh, over the top with Clarence, but I think there, there's just enough Clarence. And I had forgotten too, kind of how. How little of Clarence you see at the uh, at the very end? I mean, Clarence really does kind of kind of dis- disappear for uh, for the last ten minutes or so.
0: Right. Um, I need to ask: Is there significance to you that Clarence is reading Tom
1: Sawyer? That's a really good question, and. Yeah, I mean I don't know, you know, what what do you want, you know, Tom Sawyer classic American tale of the of uh you know, is George supposed to be kind of a Tom Sawyer character, is Clarence supposed to be kind of a Tom Sawyer character? I mean, I took it clearly obviously as a temporal reference, but I I don't right. know because I I I wouldn't really align align George with uh with Tom Sawyer. Yeah, so, I would
0: I I don't have an answer to that either. I was thinking what? about it and all I could think of and this is clearly not the case, but it works out well is like um Tom Sawyer is, uh, well, I guess Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn, either of those books, like they're not the greatest novel ever written in America, but they're in the conversation when you talk about what is the great American novel, yeah. right? Especially especially Huck Finn, maybe more so than Tom Sawyer. Um, and I think I think about it's a wonderful life is not the greatest movie ever made, but it's in a conversation for like this is maybe the great American movie in a kind right, of way, right. you know. So again, there's no way Capra could have thought about that, but it it's nice that it's there that you have the the, the Twain reference there because I do feel like there is something about that to say like well maybe this tells us as much about America as anything can.
1: Yeah, I mean it it is you know it is a small town life, right? And then uh, and you get then the and you also get with with Huck Finn the notion of lighting out for the territories, right? So mm-hmm. there is also the theme of escapism at the same time.
0: Um so then we get to the uh I wish I was never born uh and we get uh this sort of, sort of uh trip through Pottersville what 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 uh, Bedford Falls becomes and here's where I thought and I was wondering if, and then I did a little bit of research, and this is clearly the case. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this feels so much like it must have influenced Robert Zemeckis when he made Back to the Future 2. Oh, like there is the, when 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 Marty goes back to Hill Valley in 1985 in that movie, it's like, "Oh, this just feels like Pottersville." And then I was doing a little research, and Zemeckis was very clearly saying, "This is like in a wonderful, and it's a wonderful life." Um, so so very much um, influenced uh, influenced that. Um, but we get this, this sort of sense of like, here's, and then this is where it feels like a time travel. So it feels like a time travel movie in general. It's like, well, what happens if we change one thing in the timeline? What is the, uh, the butterfly effect of that Mm -hmm. in life? Um, which is, which is a a classic trope in time travel movies. So I feel like this is, um, without being sci-fi, this has some elements, which really are going to inform sci-fi stories.
1: Yeah, and, and and I think the you know the way it unfolds obviously you you know there there are multiple there, there's no single butterfly effect but I think the way that it unfolds with, you know realizing that you know without without him his brother dies uh, his his mother his I think one of the most one of the most um, affecting moments in that respect is coming face to face with his mother. Mm-hmm. And having his own mother not recognize him because again, he never, he never existed. So, I think, uh, and, and I think the, the idea that it's both at that personal level, but uh, obviously at the societal level, you know, that one person actually can have that kind of uh, effect. I also think of a different film I've mentioned in the past, uh, Sliding Doors. Like mm-hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow, Paltrow film, where you know, uh, the film follows the two different timelines of what happens if she gets on the subway versus she doesn't get on the subway. Not quite the same as existing, non-existing, but it's the idea of what happens if a different event occurs or doesn't occur at a particular point in time.
0: And I just think it's interesting how many of the different characters we get to uh, we get to encounter, um, and thinking about the even in in big ways and small ways the impacts that that he has. Uh, I need to point out that both my wife and daughter uh, pointed out like it's sort of weird that like Mary Bailey Mary Bailey is basically she's just a librarian and wears glasses, <laughs> you know, like she doesn't get married. But it's like okay, well, but what's funny is Clarence is like, oh, I don't want to show you her, but it's like well, she's actually like, I mean not as happy maybe but it's but it's it is sort of funny like it's not like she falls into this very dark you know thing it's just like oh she's a li- she's an unmarried librarian with glasses
1: so that's a weird that's 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 one of the weird ones yeah which is the best they can do to make her somehow unattractive right that's but, right but you know but it reinforces that great myth you know that there was really only one person for her but that person was never born so she never found that man
0: Right, right. So this leads us then to the the, the final scene and, you know, kind of um, this moment where George returns to to the home and people actually, to his home and people recognize him and all the people come in and they start sort of, you know, giving what they have, dumping, dumping the money onto the, um, yeah. you know, onto the table. And we, and, and more importantly, is people telling George uh, what they mean to him. Um I was on a podcast earlier this week um and we were talking about kind of the the you know the faces we put out to other people and wh- how we think about identity and one of the things we talked about is how at times you realize less less than anyone who you are right it's the people around you sometimes need to tell you things about who you are because you can't see those things and we um we definitely see this and and again I think this echoes George telling his father that he thinks he's a great man I, I i like that that sort of comes comes full circle
1: yeah i i it used to frustrate me about that final scene that um and, and i and i admire capra for doing this that there's no there's no actual vindication of george you know the, you know potter doesn't reveal that he has the money uh and so it's interesting that that people are, are shown as not questioning why george is short with the money so you kind of get back to, and here is the bank examiner, ultimately. I mean, all he cares about is if you got the money, you got the money. So you kind of get back to this um, hyper generous view of the, of the population that, you know, they're all going mean, to, so it, it's, it's an interesting contrast because you, you look at the bank run scene and, and then this scene, and I think part of what you see, what you realize is, well, that's the equity in human relationships that he's built up over the intervening years, you know, that now people he really has invested so deeply that his investment is literally paying, coming back. There's a, there's, a, there's a little plaque in his father's office and I didn't write down the exact quote, but it was under the picture of his father after his father died, the quote says something like, all that you can take with you is what you've given away. Hmm. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, that's what's being shown in, in that, in that final scene. It's, uh, it's, it's like in Ecclesiastes, cast your bread upon the water and it will return to you. Right. That's, that's kind of what George is, he's really reaping what he sows in a, in a generous sense.
0: Hmm. I thought of two, uh, two other movies that I jotted down as I was thinking about this, um uh, two other movies that we've watched, um, that there is. And I will say this movie, I'll just admit, when I got to the end, I cried. And when I watched it both times this week, I cried. Um, And these two other movies are other movies we have watched that also make me cry. One is I think of Babette's Feast, Mm -hmm. um, which is this, you know, part of that is a story about these people who make choices in life and they make the choices to sort of stay behind and to not, you know, go after love or go after art or these things. And then there is this overall sense that those things that we give up come back to us in, in you know in in certain ways. Little, sort of what you're saying. The other thing it made me think of is Doc Graham in Field of Dreams, you know, where yeah. it's like he's somebody who also like had this dream and had it cut short in a kind of way and went back to a small town and you know arguably became more meaningful than if he had had a baseball career. You know, yeah. George's life is arguably more meaningful. It makes me think of the line when, um, when Terrence Mann is talking to the, the woman uh, who writes for the newspaper or, or talking to, uh, no, he's talking to, um, to Ray. And he says, you know, maybe we came here to learn that one life can change the world. And, and mm. he says, did he? And he said, well, he did for these people. Right. And yeah. it's like, so, so, so is it, I feel sort of echoes of that in there, uh, in, in there as well. Um, wow, we have covered a lot of ground. We usually don't go through a movie plot by plot like this, but, but this one was helpful to do that with, um, do you have other, I have a couple other little notes here, or there, but do you have anything else you want to talk about with this? Yeah, I have
1: a couple of notes as well. You know, one is, uh, since we're talking unash- unashamedly about crying, I, 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 think I cry at least at three points in this film. And, uh, one of them is very early on when Mr. Gower is beating George, um, there's something about george's tears that elicit tears in me and uh, i just want to make sure people recognize that mr gower is h.b warner and of course we saw h.b warner in uh, sunset boulevard as one of the waxwork figures uh playing cards uh great hollywood actor from the, from the uh from the silent era um and also, as long as we're on the topic of uh, uncredited actors, there's one line this actor has at the end. He is one of the sheriffs serving the uh, the arrest, the warrant for George's arrest at the house. That's Alan Bridge, who always plays these roles. We previously saw him as the Mr. in Sullivan's Travels, uh, and he shows up in several other uh, uh, Preston Sergis films. I just want to say I have to give the critics their day in court. Um, there are those who refuse to be. Um, uh, charmed by the sentimentality of this film. Uh, and that's a theme that actually starts contemporaneously. Uh, Bosley Crowther, who was kind of the reigning critic of the New York Times was one of those people who did not like the film. Um, and he says that, uh, it's the sentimentality of it, the illusory concept of life. Mr. Capra's nice people are charming. He says his small town is quite beguiling and his pattern for solving problems is most optimistic and facile but somehow they all resemble theatrical attitudes rather than average realities. I think it's really interesting because I think we tend to think of audiences and even critics of uh, bygone eras as being sentimentalists, and and they weren't. And in a way, this film was much more out of step with, with popular opinion than was um, The Best Years of Our Lives. So he and Weiler, their films both opened in December, uh, you know, friendly competition, but it was clear that... Weiler had read the popular mood much more successfully uh, than Capra had. And the contemporary, uh, contem- contemporary writers um, uh, have also said, uh, <laughs> one writer in writing in Salon said, The Wonderful Life is the most terrifying Hollywood film ever made. Um, because he says in, uh, in the Pottersville sequence, George Bailey is not seeing the world that would exist that he'd never been born, but rather the world as it does exist in our own time and place somebody said elsewhere we live in pottersville and that, that's that's terrifying about this film
0: um i need to i need to point out one other actor and this is this is also a a shout out to my daughter um and that is when she saw ernie the first time she said oh that's the dad from doby gillis
1: yeah ward so, button.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, no, it's, uh, it's Frank Phelan. Oh,
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm thinking you're right. I was thinking, bro, oh, okay. Well, Kurt, I'll do another shout out. Bert, Bert, the pl- Bert, the policeman is Ward Bond, who is, is a great character actor in so many forties and fifties Westerns. So. Um,
0: the, uh, one of the other fact that I'll say is that this movie, the winter scenes were shot in summer. Um, yes. so I told my wife that and it's like, they actually do a really good job. I mean, it doesn't look, anybody who lives in a place like Minnesota knows it doesn't look like real snow. But it does look like winter. It does feel like winter. And it's, it's, so it's crazy to think that these, these were shot uh, on a summer night.
1: Well, it's one more reason why Capra broke the budget. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, before, before we move on from this, do you want to quickly explain why this movie, if it wasn't popular in 1946, what is the story of how it became popular? Because this has a very unique story to it.
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe you have a different story than I do, Sam. I I just thought about it in terms of the repeated uh, viewings on TV, but obviously you've gone a little deeper than that.
0: Well, I mean, the fact that why the repeated viewings happened is that in 1974 there was a paperwork mistake where the copyright was not um, maintained. Right, right, right. So it falls into the public domain, so everybody could show this. So it was. I mean, when we say it was ubiquitous, it really was everywhere. Um, So this this led to for probably about ten years this movie being shown everywhere yeah, so exactly Yep. Yeah. all right barrett what do you have for us for next week
1: okay well uh i mentioned the I, I mentioned the revered name a few minutes ago i feel like we can't deal with war if we don't do a preston sturgis film uh on the theme of the returning uh war veteran so i want to do preston sturgis's hail the conquering hero uh next week
0: fantastic Barrett we are running out of time I think uh, I think I heard a reminder for you that you have a meeting to get to so <laughs> we'll wrap this up quick thank you so much for uh, for recommending this film um, for having this conversation this is something I'd seen a lot but but I feel like I was able to think about it in a different way and I do want to recommend five came back either the book or the Netflix um, miniseries they're they're both really fantastic, and they get into some really interesting filmmakers doing some interesting work. Um, that's all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Hail the Conquering Hero in the video story.